Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have another amazing, awesome guest on the show who you've actually heard from a little bit before, but we have Tori, who's an almost doctor and is also a forensic anthropologist. Welcome to the show, Tori. Hi, Amelia. Thank you so much. And thank you for the listeners. I'm really excited to be here. I think it's going to be an interesting one. We're actually recording in the right week. It's just leading up to Halloween, although obviously everyone's not going to get to hear that. Oh, it would have been perfect timing. Oh, well, you'll just have to for those of you who are listening now, it's probably like summer's really hitting. Throw yourself back to the sort of like spooky autumnal vibes of pretending you're in the Northern Hemisphere. We'll just throw everything out of whack. Anyhow, starting with hopefully an easy question that has nothing to do with seasonal confusion. What is your job, Tori? Uh, so I'm a forensic anthropologist. I'm not currently practicing because I am doing my PhD. Essentially, what my what a forensic anthropologist does is we study human remains in a legal context. And my PhD project specifically, I'm looking at testing different kinds of technologies to locate covert burials. So when someone is murdered, uh, sometimes the offender chooses to put them in a grave because, in all honesty, a grave is really difficult to find. So, and because of that, you know, it's hard to get a conviction when we don't have a body. So my research is trying to find the body before we actually dig down and excavate because excavation is expensive, it's time consuming, and depending on who you work for, it can be, you may not have the right number of people, etc. A lot of issues can arise. So my research is actually just trying to be more certain that there's someone buried in the ground before we excavate. Right. That's quite macabre. (laughs) I often get that, like, oh, how do you study dead people? But I mean, someone has to do it. And I discovered early on in life that I couldn't do living people, but still wanted to help. So I turned to helping dead people because they deserve to have a voice just as much as living people do. Well, I mean, yes, definitely. And... We don't so often get to hear from people who are helping give the dead a voice. Although I feel like you may be often misrepresented in popular media, possibly on TV. I feel like our job is a lot easier on TV and people seem to think that, you know, there's always a fingerprint to find or there's always... I was watching an episode of Bones one time where the main character is a forensic anthropologist and they were using this technique called ground penetrating radar. And that's actually one of the techniques that I'm using for my research. And it's essentially, it looks like a lawnmower, like you're pushing it and it looks like a lawnmower. And what GPR does is it sends energy into the ground and the the time and distance it takes to bounce back to the receptor tells you if there's anything buried there. It essentially detects anomalies in the ground and a grave can be considered an anomaly. But in this episode of Bones, they were pushing this machine over the grave site. On their little screen, it showed an actual picture of the burial. And on TV, I get it. You have to have that wow factor. It has to be cool. 
where, I mean, I think GPR is pretty cool in the first place, but it doesn't like, it doesn't show you a picture of the subsurface anomaly like they did on TV. So often, more often than not, they absolutely misrepresent what we do. I guess the thought behind it is the same. Like they're trying to, you know, use evidence to identify an offender, but the way they go about it is a lot more grandiose and wrong a lot of the time. (laughs) Well, yeah, and it it is, as you say, for the spectacle, a lot easier on TV. A lot of jobs are easier on TV. So just to go into the grave kind of concept a bit, is there a lot of commonality across these covert burials? Like in my head, not that I, I'll be honest, haven't thought about it much till right now, those burials would all occur, I guess, for all the different reasons why people get murdered by different people and therefore would the the body disposal would be quite different. I've never thought that they would have that many commonalities that you could research. So if you think about the act of actually digging a grave, it's, you know, shoveling soil out of the ground, placing something into it and putting that soil back on top. Whether or not you know, things could be different about that. It could be deeper, it could be bigger. The grave itself could contain more than just people. But the actual act itself, the act of digging out that soil and putting the soil back in, is essentially the same. You're disturbing the ground, right? If you think about it, where the area where the burial is, that's going to be disturbed soil. Whereas the soil around it is going to be natural, untouched. So running these technologies over them, you can actually detect a difference between natural, untouched soil and disturbed soil. But the problem is not all disturbances, we call them anomalies, not all of these disturbances are because of graves, right? They could be rocks, they could be tree roots, because the soil itself is a certain chemistry the electromagnetic waves just can't penetrate that. There can be a lot of different reasons as to why it would detect some sort of anomaly. You know, it's not a surefire thing. If I'm running, you know, my GPR, which is ground penetrating radar, if I'm running that over a site, if I see an anomaly, it's not, oh yes, this is a grave right here because it could just be a buried rock. It could be a gravel layer. It could be rubbish, right? It could be a lot of other things. So you have to incorporate things about the case. So if the anomaly, you can you can detect the size of the anomaly based from GPR data. So if the anomaly is really small, that may not be a grave. But if the anomaly is decent size and a decent depth that could mimic a grave, that would be an area that I would highlight for excavation. Or, you know, if the anomaly is 10 meters under the ground, it's hard to reach that far. But even if like three meters under the ground it's less likely that someone would dig three meters down to dispose of a body. Just because digging is hard, especially when you have clay and rock layers, most forensically significant burials are like half a meter. So if you have anything way deeper than that, like three meters, it's likely that it's not relevant to your investigation. So the act of digging a grave is the same across all dug graves. It's just a matter of deciding whether the anomaly you detect is a grave or if it's something natural. Yeah, right. That makes sense. And uh, clearly people digging 
these graves aren't necessarily following like the health and safety hygiene concepts of the six feet, funnily enough. You mentioned that using a couple of different kinds of technology. Are there any others other than the ground penetrating radar, which is obviously quite nifty and could obviously be used for other things as well? Are there any other kinds of technology? Yeah, so the other one I'm using is called electrical resistivity tomography, which uses electricity to kind of do the same thing. So GPR and ERT, which is electrical resistivity tomography, do the same thing in the sense that they detect subsurface anomalies. They just go at it in a different way. So ERT, what you have to do is you put these metal stakes into the ground and you attach like an electrical cord through them or across them. And then you send electrical currents through these stakes in different patterns, then penetrates the subsurface and detects anomalies. ERT is sometimes, like GPR is the most commonly used one. Archaeologists use it. uh, Police use it. It's the most well-known one because it works in almost any kind of terrain. Like there are certain terrains that doesn't work well, but you can usually get some sort of response from a GPR. Like it's, it's the most common. ERT is less commonly used and more so in like engineering and kind of commercial uses. And I would say in recent years, it's been used in archaeology. It's actually only ever been used once in Australia in a forensic case, which is where my research comes in to sort of validate it as a method for burial search. And ERT actually seems to work best where GPR falls short because it doesn't matter so much about the soil chemistry or anything like but it takes longer to set up and it takes longer to actually run through an entire ERT line, which is why, again, GPR is sometimes more commonly used because you can do a GPR line in about 10 seconds, depending on how long it is, whereas an ERT line of the same length would take two hours. So it's, they do the same thing, essentially, using different kinds of energy that's emitted into the ground. And sometimes they work, sometimes one works better than the other. That two hours for one section, that's like an expensive, that's resource intensive to get that working. And I have to say, I've done it now a few times for my own research, and it is very physically intensive to set out a GPR line because you have to hammer in each of the 64 electrodes. The sets come with different numbers of electrodes. The set I have or that I get to use is 64. So you have to hammer in 64 electrodes. Sometimes the ground is hard. Sometimes it's soft. You never really have control over that. You have to pour water over each electrode. So I have these like two 20 liter containers of water that I have to fill up and carry and dump. I'm bent over, I'm standing up. It's a lot. Like it is incredibly physically intensive. And I really just needed to get that out there. Like it's a lot of physical work to run an ERT line, as well as it being just time consuming. Like it it takes two hours to set up and run. And what kind of area does that cover? It depends on how far you separate your electrodes. So the different lengths that you have in between each electrode will allow for a deeper or shallower penetration, depending on how they're set up. For my research project and for probably most forensic and 
archaeological burial, archaeological sites that aren't incredibly vast. Like I think I did 0.25 of a meter. So like 25 centimeters between each one. So 25 centimeters by 64. I don't do math. That's why I have calculators, however long that is. But my external supervisor from Flinders, he said he's done sites that had like a meter in between each electrode. So you can choose how far you want in between. But like my line of 64 electrodes really wasn't that long. Maybe it was like 15 meters. Maybe I'm remembering that number now and could be 15 meters. It looks about like 15, 16 meters. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) That's not very big really for like that period of time, that much energy. You'd want to be fairly certain that you were in the right spot. Yeah, but it provides excellent data on buried features. So I mentioned that ERT has only been used in one forensic case in Australia, and the case was the Beaumont investigation. It was back in 1966 in South Australia. Three siblings went to the beach on Australia Day. They disappeared and then have never been found. It is one of the largest investigations that have ever occurred in Australia. The manpower or person power that they used on this case was huge. And the fact that, you know, it's remained unsolved for this long is one of it's one of the longest open cases, I would say, that Australia has. And in 2018, my supervisors got called by the police because they had gotten information about a potential site to search. And my principal supervisor at the University of Newcastle, Dr. Xanthi Mallet, she was involved in the investigation somehow and was told about this potential site. So she contacted my external supervisor from Flinders. His name is Dr. Ian Moffat. He's a geophysicist. And she, you know, reached out to him and said, we have a potential site. Do you think you could survey it? So they did GPR and ERT at this site. GPR was not helpful. The soil just wasn't conducive to a GPR survey. So they did ERT. And the exciting thing was when they did this ERT line, the results showed this very specific anomaly that was the right depth and the right size for a grave that can, could contain three children. So they ended up excavating. They didn't find anything. It was just a, a rubbish hole, which if you actually look into the case, they think that was a bit of a red herring on behalf of the offender. Um, it's quite a fascinating case, actually. But the exciting part was, as they were excavating down the different layers before they hit the bottom, the dimensions of the grave were pretty much exactly what was identified in the ERT data. So the size and depth of the anomaly in the ERT data was validated when they excavated because the size and depth matched, essentially. It was pretty cool. Very thick plot, but also like scientifically very cool. Do these burial sites, like how long are they viable for to be picked up? Can you look at ones from, I'm thinking, I don't know, like Vikings invading Scotland and the the horrible things that happened there. Like can the same technologies be used back hundreds of years as well? Yeah. So I, I don't have like a set number for you for how far it can go back, but 
these technologies, GPR and ERT, are often used in an archaeological capacity. And the sites that they're looking at are often, you know, hundreds of years old. Often the thing that separates forensic science, like a forensically significant burial to an archaeologically significant burial is the fact that there's someone alive to be held accountable for it. So if no one is alive anymore to be held accountable for it, it could be considered historic or archaeological. And I mean, archaeological burials can go back. All the way. Exactly. So essentially, like, so when I was talking about the act of digging a grave, that disturbance never really goes away. When you dig a grave, when you make a grave, and especially when you put a body in it, the surface can do, does certain things. Like sometimes the surface can mound, sometimes the surface can depress, and that will be indicative of potential grave. Sometimes because of the chemicals emitting from the body, all of the plant life around the burial will die. So there'll be like essentially an area without any plants. But if someone's been buried long enough, the plants have started to grow back. So sometimes you could have, it looks completely as it did before the burial. So the grass or the plant life is the exact same. Sometimes you have a completely new dominant species growing and that can tell you that there's a burial. So there's certain like surface features that we can look at. And that's what forensic anthropologists do. Like when we're employed to look for potential graves, like if we're given a tip from the police that someone went missing and this is the, the area, we can look for certain surface features to try to identify these burials. But if they've been buried long enough, those features go away. You know, the surface has gone back to normal. But the underground, the subsurface, never actually, I guess, recovers from that disturbance. So they can be detected. Again, I don't want to give you a number, but many, 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 many years afterwards. Yeah, right. I'm now feeling a little bit guilty. Like every time I dig a hole and plant a tree, I'm like, I already am cutting worms in half. And now I'm causing like ongoing damage to the soil like structure. I mean, I don't study soil. I don't think it's actually hurting the soil in any way. But you can see that disturbance years later, like it kind of, it's, it's like a break on your bone, like bone breaks, it can heal. But if you look at x-rays, or if you look at the actual bone, it, sometimes that, that break never really heals, right? The sign of that break never actually goes away. And it's the same with the ground. Sometimes that disturbance never actually, and often actually, that disturbance never goes away. Subsurface wise, surface wise, it can go away. Yeah. Sounds like there's a window surface wise where it's, you need to know a lot of things. Like obviously there's a bit about like people and how people interact with an environment and stuff, but also then environmental factors and geology and a bit of whatever electrical geology is called. Like there's a lot of things. It's been a whirlwind. Honestly, I feel like I had a good base going into this PhD because I know a lot about forensic anthropology. I have a master's degree in it, done my own field work. But learning the geophysics side of it has been a whirlwind. There's a lot to it. There's soil chemistry and lithology and all these things that I never, I, I knew of. I knew they were important with graves specifically, but I never knew anything about them. And now I'm learning and it's great. <laughs> It'd be disappointing if you started a PhD and didn't learn anything. That'd be a waste of time, honestly, <laughs> and not worth the pain. I have to say, not worth the pain. 
Whereas you're going to come away, you know, it's a PhD that might make people sort of sit back for a little bit, but then they're going to lean in at a dinner party when we can have dinner parties again and be like, so. (laughs) I feel like forensic science gets that cool factor. It starts from TV, like the fact that TV romanticizes forensic science. That's, you know, got people's curiosities peaked, but it by nature is just a cool It's a cool thing and it's a really relevant thing. Like crime affects us all, whether personally or by proxy or, you know, something they only see on the news, but it absolutely affects us all. And it's, it's something that, I mean, touch everyone, touch each person in the world in some way or another. That's why people love true crime. That's why it's taken off in the last decade or so. And there's about 1 million documentaries on Netflix, you know, as, as, relevant and important of the science it is it has that cool factor and as soon as I say I'm a forensic anthropologist everyone's like oh no way tell me everything are you bones and I'm like well yeah okay like no but sure if you want to say that yes there's a lot of differences but it's essentially the underlying idea is what I do yes yeah it varies in the details yeah She's a pretty snappy dresser for someone who, um... Yeah. Walk up to a crime scene in their high heels and their hair down. No. No, you're in, like, a bunny suit and your face is hidden. Like, you, no one can really see any feature of your body. <laughs> Not good TV. No, it's it's boring. And that's why they have to make it flashy and cool. <laughs> All the way back to our original set of questions, I I feel like you probably wouldn't have an average day, but what are some of the average days that you might have across your work? So about four weeks, four times a year, I spend in the field. There's a research facility in Sydney. The acronym is AFTER, and it's the Australian Facility for Taphonomic Experimental Research. It's run by UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney. They have a site with human donors. They also have a site with animal remains. So I've created three graves on the animal side. Two are single pig burials, and one is a mass pig burial that has three pigs in it. And they're each a different depth. The first grave with one pig in it is half a meter. The mass grave, I think, is one meter. And then the second single grave is almost two meters. So I buried those pigs with a lot of help. And then four times a year, I come back and I I survey it with both GPR and ERT. I also got the opportunity at the human site, the human donor site, to survey some human burials as well. So I can do a comparison between animal burials and human burials. So about four times a year, I'm out in the field doing that and actually collecting data. The rest of the year, I'm teaching. I'm a casual academic at the University of Newcastle in criminology, or I'm, you know, trying to work through my PhD. So I'm doing a PhD by publication, which essentially is instead of coming out with, you know, like a giant book that is my thesis, I'll have like eight or so publications. I will then combine into a coherent book. But throughout the year and throughout the years, I'm just working on 
you know, I, I've actually just finished my three literature review chapters. So that was really exciting. So I've been working on those publications and then moving forward, I just work on collecting, analyzing, and then publishing more data. So a little bit of field work and quite a lot of desk and writing work. Yeah, COVID didn't really change my job, except for the fact that I couldn't go into the office and I got incredibly sick of my own office at home. <laughs> but I mean, we were all there, so <laughs> we can all we can all feel that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can. What kind of analysis do you do? Like, uh, is this sort of statistical analysis or? That's an excellent question. I actually haven't been taught firsthand how to do it. I've read about it and I've done a lot of research on it. I've never done it myself yet. That's hopefully coming in the next year. But it's essentially, so once you collect the data, you have to process it, process it into an interpretable format. So when the, the data that comes directly, you know, from the machine isn't always interpretable. Sometimes there's a lot of noise. Sometimes there's a bunch of data points that, you know, were in error, don't make sense. So you go through a, a few processes to kind of make the data look nicer, and then you can interpret it. So I can essentially look at my GPR and ERT data and tell you whether or not what I'm looking at is a grave. Obviously, with my research, I'm not trying to find the graves. I'm essentially trying to validate that you can find something. So like when I buried the pigs, I took extensive measurements of where they were. And like, so I know exactly where they are. It's just about how well these techniques actually identify them and to assess their detectability, essentially. So yeah, I guess in a couple months, I'll look at the data and see how well it could actually detect each of my graves. And hopefully it'll validate other people's work. And yeah, I think this is really important research to do to make sure that the technology we're using does actually work in the ways that we expect when we expect all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the really cool thing about my project or one of the points that I want to show is whether or not pigs are appropriate human proxies. So in forensic anthropology, we often use pigs for anthropological research or even forensic science research. Like when we're watching, when we're trying to figure out how something decomposes, we often, if we don't have access to human donors, we have to use pigs because they're the closest, the closest things we have. They're not great, but they're the closest things we have. With my research, what I'm trying to show is because I'm not actually trying to detect the contents of the burial, I'm detecting the disturbance I'm going to try to, I'm going to see if I can show if, you know, pigs can be good proxies. And if they are, we can then replicate this research all over Australia, because both of these techniques are highly affected by the environment and soil conditions. And I mean, the soil conditions here are much different than the soil conditions in WA, right? Or even in Northern Territory or Central Australia, like it, even though we're the same country, we're nowhere near the same sort of soil chemistry or soil layering. Like it's very, very different. And the environment is different. The climate is different, you know, rainfall, sometimes places get snow. So if we can replicate this research in other parts around Australia, then moving forward, if we're looking for, you know, if there's 
human remains that the police are trying to find in a certain environment, we can say, all right, actually, this technique works best, and we can run it, and we can do that instead of maybe a more trial and error approach where we use multiple methods and hope, you know, one of them lands. Yeah, which obviously would then have cost and time associated with it as well. So, Yeah. On top of the technology side, I've actually started to work with a geographic profiler. He's from Canada, which is where I'm from, if you couldn't tell by the accent. But he essentially assesses offender and victim behavior on top of the environmental, geographic, the spatial aspects of the crime, the temporal aspects of the crime, and tries to see if he can identify body deposition sites. So he's not using any of these, you know, technologies on the actual ground. He's looking at the case saying the offender lived and worked here, the victim lived and worked here, this is where they overlapped. And by analyzing these different behavioral cues and environmental, geographic, temporal, and spatial cues of the case, he can potentially highlight areas to search. So I've sort of taken a step above the geophysics side of my project and done a bit of like a behavioral side of it to try to pinpoint even like an area to search, like a large area. And then I can use my two geo, not mine, the two geophysical techniques to narrow down, you know, that large, that larger area. It's almost like it continuously narrows down the search area for the end goal of ultimately finding that missing and buried person. Because I was thinking that earlier when you're describing different locations and stuff, because if you look at a topographic map, obviously people are more likely to do one thing than another, but they might be more likely to head downhill rather than uphill or avoid large trees or head towards creeks or away from creeks. And yeah, there'd be a lot of those sort of micro geographies that would rule out or rule in areas at a sort of broad scale. Yeah. When I was actually in my master's, we learned, did a master's in forensic anthropology and we learned like not to the extent that like a geographic profiler would know, but if we were, you know, employed with this very large area that we had to search to try and find a grave, we were actually taught, you know, there are certain areas that are going to be more attractive than others. A dead body is heavy. No one's, like you said, no one's going to carry it up a hill. Unless it was a very well thought out crime, often burying them is an attempt to get rid of all the evidence. It was, you know, maybe it happened by accident and they're just trying to cover it up. So when you think about it, you have to try to think of the most rational way that someone would come to that conclusion. They're not going to go up a hill. They're probably not going to do it in daytime where people can see them. So it's going to be someplace that it's accessible by a flashlight, probably doesn't have its own external light because that'll attract people. So there were certain almost behavioral cues that we were taught. And it wasn't until I started working with, um, his name is Doug McGregor, that he kind of opened up the world of how much behavior actually plays into it. And even if you think about how much, like if the victim means something to the offender, they might bury them in a place that indicates that. So 
maybe on their property, maybe at work, someplace that they know versus if the offender, you know, has no relationship with the victim or it was a complete accident and they're just trying to get rid of them, they might deposit their body in a place that indicates that, you know, there was no remorse, there was no actual meaningfulness in that relationship. The amount that behavior plays into these things is incredible. And as a scientist, it really opened my eyes how much, I guess like behavioral psychology is a science, but how much like even the criminology side and the social science side played into my work, it really opened my eyes and it's fascinating. It is a very holistic science, what you're doing. You can't just pretend that, oh, this is all just the hard facts and people do things based on the hard facts. It's, there'll be emotions and adrenaline and all sorts of wild. Yeah, no, exactly. Like it's, and as much as people may think crime might seem a bit chaotic and people just do these crazy things, it's actually very structured and guided by our behavior. And, you know, it's very often that you're going to, that the offender is going to take them to a place that they know, as opposed to someplace they don't know. So if you have an idea of who the offender is, it's probably a good thing to look into areas that they frequent or areas that they could have driven to in the unaccounted for time that they don't have an alibi for. It's amazing how much our behavior plays into the decisions we make. And I feel like a lot of the time people don't make that connection. Like it just seems like a random act, you know, like they were enraged and they killed him and, you know, that was the end. But to actually go from, to like to actually deposit them, a lot of very rational decisions are made probably to try to avoid detection. And if we can, you know, think put ourselves in that offender's shoes and think about what those rational decisions might be, you have a more likely chance of finding areas that they could be buried on. How have you ended up in this area of research? Did high school Tori want to solve the world's problems or what was your path from high school to where you are now? When I was in high school, I actually got really sick. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma and it became very clear to me at that point that I wanted to help people. But it also became very clear to me that I could not deal with living patients. Like it just, it wasn't my thing. I feel like I'm a very, I'm an overly emotional person and living people, other living people are also emotional beings. And it didn't seem like something I could handle. Like I was trying to put myself in the doctor's shoes, trying to take care of me as a patient. And I just never... I was never able to see it. So I started, because I was on treatment, I had a lot of spare time and I watched a lot of TV and a lot of crime shows. Even as like a forensic scientist, I'm a sucker for crime shows, even though I know how ridiculous they are, I'm a sucker. And I, at this time, I had been watching a lot of them and I was like, this is a pretty cool thing. I wonder if it's real. So I did a bit of searching and found that there are actually quite a few programs that offer forensic science. And, you know, push came to shove. I enrolled in university. I actually wanted to enroll in forensic biology, but ended up in forensic anthropology 
And I, you know, I did the whole, oh, I'll just do this for a year and transfer after year one, you know, like everyone has it in their mind that they're going to change their majors. But I loved it. I absolutely fell in love with anthropology and forensic science. I went to the University of Toronto, the Mississauga campus back in Canada, and just fell in love. It was something different every day. The nature of forensic cases is it's always different. And it was actually truly helping people. Like I said at the beginning, the dead don't often get a voice. Um, In fact, we've had to fight a lot to give them a voice. And I just, I loved it. And I stuck with it. And so you went on to do a master's? Yep. So I did a master's. It was actually kind of funny when I was finishing my undergrad, I was like, I'm done. I'm done school. I can't do it anymore. And then very close to the deadline, I was like, whatever, I'll apply. So I did, did the master's. At the end of the program, I was like, I'm done. I am done. But you know, uh, clearly I'm not. And I had on a complete whim, I'm in Canada, you know, my current supervisor in Australia, we're as far apart as you could possibly be in the world. And I, on a whim, emailed her saying, these are my research interests. I would love to do a PhD. And that was just when the Beaumont investigation was happening. So just when they were using GPR and ERT to find that grave. And she goes, I have a project for you. This is great. And, you know, it took about two years to get me here because I had to get a funding and or I had to get funding. I had to get a visa. So it was a long two years to actually get me here, but stuck it out, got my visa, got a scholarship from the University of Newcastle, and here I am. That's awesome. So what comes next? Honestly, that's a future Tory decision. It's a great question to ask a PhD student. I should check myself. <laughs> no, I, I do want to teach. So I would love a teaching job as much as I love doing research. I probably have to say that teaching is my passion. Um, Like I just, I love watching the light bulb go on. Like I just love, you know, they ask a question, they're unsure. And I try to explain it in a way that they can understand. And I see the light bulb and I'm just like, this is the moment. Like, this is why I do what I do. And that was actually one of the reasons that I continued on with the PhD is because you can't really teach without it. So yeah, I'm hoping to get a teaching job. Who knows where that will be, but that's probably the goal. That's awesome. And you're definitely not the first person who's come on the show. And it's been like, they obviously, they love their research and their work, but teaching is the bit that feeds them and keeps them going. It's validating in a way, like as a PhD student and probably as a scientist in general, we all have imposter syndrome. Like we're all sitting here thinking, can we, like, are we actually doing this? Do we actually know stuff? But when I teach it validates that imposter syndrome. And like, I actually know what I'm talking about. And I'm actually teaching these human beings and they're actually understanding me. And it's just, it's a brilliant moment. And one day we need to cover this whole imposter syndrome thing a bit more because it's not good. What's the bit of this whole thing that gets you up in the morning and keeps you going when it's raining or things are grim or you just get a bit miserable because sometimes people do dastardly things. (laughs) For me, it's the, the applicability of my research. Like right now in Australia, there's at least, there's more than 2,600 long-term missing individuals. So across the country, there's 2,600 people that have been missing for at least three months. And it's not 
a crazy assumption to assume that some of them could be murdered and buried. And my research has the ability to find them and bring them back to their loved ones. It's obviously not, you know, nothing can bring them back to life, obviously, but it can, you know, it can give the families that resolution. It's never going to give them closure, but at least they'll know what happened and they can begin to move forward. Like right now, there are at least 2,600 families that have no idea what happened to their loved ones. That not knowing is awful. Like obviously knowing your loved one is dead is a terrible, terrible feeling. But the not knowing could potentially be worse. And I think that my research has a good chance at bringing these families closure. It's obviously not like we're just going to run these techniques all over the, the country and find buried people. But, you know, if we have good police intelligence and good tips, we can find these people. A good example in Canada, they have been using GPR to locate children's burials from the residential schools. So the Indigenous population that were forced into these schools, they have now found over a thousand potential kids buried in these mass graves at different sites around Canada. And, you know, it's going to take years to excavate all that and identify and, you know, bring them home. But the fact that this research can, you know, start the process of finding them is that's what gets me out of bed. That's very powerful. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And I mean, you never really think of it because it's one of those things like, oh, it would never, you know, that doesn't happen to me. And a lot of people haven't been affected by death, thankfully. But there's a lot of people who are missing and we, we know nothing. On a slightly different note, and this is going to be a real weird question in this particular context, but is there citizen science? Like, is there ways that general people can somehow support your work? I'm going to have to say not that I know of. Like, if you want to work in what I do, you have to have gone to school, you have to be in an institution that has the equipment and the supervision to allow that kind of work. I do know that there are companies out there and programs that anyone can join and you can help find missing people. I can't think of the company's name off the top of my head, but my university were a part. We we have a it's called the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative Newcastle. And through RMIT there's a Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative that essentially deals with wrongfully convicted offenders. So if an offender is in jail, they can submit an application that they've been wrongfully convicted and the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative will look at it. We've started, like my supervisor, Xanthi, started the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative Newcastle, so at the University of Newcastle. And so we work on wrongfully convicted offender cases, but also missing person cases. So we are working with this company that I cannot think of the name of. But, you know, you can join as, you know, someone interested and help them find. It's just based on publicly accessed information. Like, I don't think they have access to any special databases or anything. But if that's something you're interested in, I think there are organizations out there that allow that. I also know that 
when there's an active case and people like we're actively searching for someone, you can volunteer for that. I don't know how it works in Australia because I've never been a part of a search case here. Because the work that we do can be cross-examined in a court of law, you have to be like strictly qualified and sworn in and everything. So it's not anyone, unfortunately, unless you kind of go through the school and the training. But I guess there are a few volunteer opportunities out there. So just keep an eye out, I suppose. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have any advice that you would give to a young person who's considering this kind of career? Don't stop trying. It's a difficult degree to get into. And like, especially being, you know, on my third degree, it definitely took a lot of work. And there are many times that I wanted to quit. And if I could tell my young self anything, it would be to not stop trying. Like if it is something that you are that passionate about, don't give up. No matter what the setback, no matter what, if you feel it, that that is something you need to do, push through, do what you have to do to get there because it will be worth it. That's good. It'll be hard, but you, you could actually make a difference. And that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. And I think like back to your question about what gets me out of bed is it does make a difference. It does help people. And that that's a good feeling to have. And I think it's important that, you know, the people that are troubled, especially in this situation, you know, they've lost a loved one. If, you know, if we can help alleviate that even a little bit, I think that's so important. Undeniably. Is there any sort of myths and misconceptions that you'd like to take this opportunity to bust? I guess the whole like TV thing, like forensic science is so cool on TV. I mean, it's cool in general, but they make it so much more flashier that don't even think that's a sentence. They just make it really flashy on TV because they need that wow factor. We could do another hour on the CSI effect and how flashy TV is. Although TV on a base level shows maybe what we do, you know, we take evidence and it tells a story and we can tell the police what that story is. It is not nearly as flashy as it is on TV. Like in an episode of, I think it was CSI New York. I don't know if that was ever a big thing here, but they did corneal imaging corneal like your eye uh yeah I think I've seen this in (laughs) yeah and they saw the reflection of the person from a picture a pixelated picture of their eyeball which if that was a real thing like holy cow yes please sign me up that's awesome but it's obviously not so don't believe everything you see on tv because it's really really fake even when they Even in the true crime documentaries, like obviously it's real science that was used because they're real cases, but they often, they romanticize it a bit. You know, they make it seem a bit flashier. But yeah, I guess the biggest myth and misconception is just forensic science is not what it is on TV. And, you know, we're, we follow very strict and stringent protocols. What we find has to be validated in a court of law. If we're not perceived as educated enough or it's not our area of expertise we can be eliminated as an expert witness like a lot goes into it 
And I've never been to court personally as an expert witness, but I've talked to people who have and it's scary. They grill you. And you know, it's not as dramatized or it's not as fun as it seems on TV. But it's still cool. Yes, still cool. (laughs) Just, I guess, not as fun. (laughs) Or not as, I don't know what the right word is. It's not as flashy. Not as flashy and shiny and like smoothly cohesive. Yeah. (laughs) Funnily enough, reality's real. (laughs) No way. Do you have a a shout out, a virtual high five for someone who you're just like everyone who's listening to give virtual COVID safe high fives to? After talking about my research, I feel like I'd really like to give high fives to my research team. And I, I may have mentioned most or some of them. So Xanthi Mallet, she's a forensic criminologist at the University of Newcastle, would not be here without her. My other supervisor at UON, uh, Dr. Justin Ellis, incredible. My colleague in criminology, his name is Peter Gogarty. He's like my favorite person ever. I probably shouldn't say that, you know, in front of all these people, but he is. He's incredible. And then my external supervisor, Dr. Ian Moffat at Flinders. And then I also worked with Doug McGregor from Canada. He's a geographic profiler. And they have been an incredible team, like the dream team of forensic science. And... Just recently brought on someone else on my team, Yuri Shendrick. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He works with 3D technology, but honestly could not ask for a better team. Like just want to give them all virtual high fives. They're incredible. Fantastic. Okay. So that's a lot of high fives to receive listeners, but I think we're up to the task. So, and I just want to say thank you to everyone who's doing research in this area and working in this area, because I feel like it could be really slow and you wouldn't have wins every day, but the wins you do have would be huge and they make big differences to people's lives. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Tori. It has been very educational. I think everyone's learned something and it's just been great. So thank you for coming. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I've had such a great conversation. It's been so fun sharing my research. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Research this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee painting. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.